Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rational Policy Podcast. I am your host, Mike Cote. Thanks so much for joining me for this third episode of the show. On this episode, we'll be doing a different format than I have in the past. Instead of talking about one specific issue, we'll be talking about three, all in the realm of international relations and foreign policy. So this is our foreign telegram series, this time for October 2022. So we'll be talking about three different topics here all around the world, three different things that have kind of caught my mind, uh, stuck on in, in my head and made me something to think about a lot, especially things that have been talked about in the news or that have just been covered by me recently. Uh, two of the three of these topics are things that I've written about at rationalpolicy.com, so feel free to check that out if you want any more of my thoughts on these topics. I'll be recovering a little bit of those arguments in this specific podcast, but other than that, I will be kind of building on top of them. So I do recommend you read the articles if you're interested. So our first segment today is going to be on Italy, talking about the recent elections there and the labeling of the new governing coalition as far right or even fascist. I wrote about this earlier this week in a post uh, titled, Giorgio Maloney is not a fascist, so I'm sure you'll be able to tell my opinion on the topic from that. After we talk about Italy for a bit, we'll be moving down to the southeast and touching on Iran, where there have been a large number of protests recently that have really rocked the regime to its core. So I'll be talking a bit about that, what's been going on in Iran itself, how we can respond to those protests and support the protesters, as well as some of the arguments that have been made against my recent piece on the topic uh, entitled Third Times the Charm over at Rational Policy. And the final thing we'll be talking about today is something that's really been in the news a lot recently, uh, has been the developments in Ukraine with the Russo-Ukrainian War. So I'll be talking a bit about what's been going on there, the escalation that's been happening, some of the moves on both the Ukrainian and the Russian sides, as well as some of the talk around what's been happening uh, in that war uh, and how it impacts the United States and the West more broadly. But before we get to Iran and Russia, we do need to start in Italy. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was an election in Italy, basically bringing in a new government to replace the unpopular coalition government that had been running the country for a few years. Italy was hit pretty hard by COVID, has been having economic woes as much of Europe has, and is uh, looking for a future of more issues going forward as the economy across the world looks like it's heading into a bit of a recessionary period. The party that won, uh, it's all a big coalition sort of system in Italy, so it's not exactly like we have here where there's individual parties and candidates for them, and one will win and one will lose. Uh, in Italy, it's much more of a proportional system where there's representation for various different parties, and they need to build a coalition to form a government. So the leader of the Brothers of Italy party, Giorgia Maloney, uh, will probably become the new prime minister of Italy. She's in a coalition with two other major parties, one of them being the League, which is run by Matteo Salvini, and another being Forza Italia, run by the former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. Uh, all these are right-leaning parties, uh, verging from on the harder right being uh, the League party towards the center right, in which I would say the other two parties are. 
basically what's happening in this is Brothers of Italy got the most of the votes in the entire country for any party, right or left, and more than doubled the vote percentages of its two coalition partners. So basically, Giorgia Maloney, uh, this Italian female politician, uh, is going to be the new prime minister and is basically going to be in charge of what the media is calling the most right-wing government in Italy since Mussolini. That's kind of a ridiculous thing to say, to be honest, just because there hasn't been too many right-wing governments at all since uh, after the Second World War, and I would hesitate to call this government nearly as right-wing as Mussolini at all. Um, and, you know, it's been labeled far-right, hard-right, fascist, and a lot of this really is, is fear-mongering. Uh, it can be a coalition that you don't like, it can be a party with positions you don't like, all of these things apply to me personally. I'm not exactly a big fan of many of the policies of this new government, um, but I'm also not going to call them fascists. Illiberalism, whether we like it or not, is not fascism. Those are not the same thing, and they're not even close to being similar. Maloney and her party are basically typical European social conservatives, akin to many other parties in other countries all around the continent. Basically, I'm not a fan of immigration, especially illegal immigration coming from Africa and the Middle East. She's very Catholic, uh, so has a lot of pro-religious stances and pro-family stances, uh, is anti-woke and anti-LGBT, and she's pretty much against the European Union. I wouldn't say as harshly as some of the, her coalition partners, but she definitely is skeptical of the institution and the amount of power that Brussels gets over Italian politics. All these things, you know, whether you like them or not, are definitely not out of the European mainstream. Uh, they're populist policies and right-wing social stances. These are not things that have been unheard of in Italian politics, European politics, or American politics before. Uh, they're not necessarily redolent of some sort of horrible evil or fascist tendency. Fascism is often a word that is overused and misused by people who like the way it sounds to smear their enemies, but don't exactly understand the true history and ideology of the political system. This is definitely not the place for me to get into that now. I'll probably be writing about it at some point in the future. But basically, I think the fastest thing to do, the best thing to do when you're thinking about fascism is to think about an authoritarian statist ideology almost akin to a totalitarian system like communism. Mussolini, who many people see as the founder of fascism, wrote some of the earliest fascist tracts, actually started out as a communist, and they were not radical enough for him in Italy, so he invented his own new system, still statist, still authoritarian, uh, still about improving the lot of the people and breaking down class walls, uh, but instead of being the party as the main source, uh, it would be the state, which, you know, it's almost a distinction without a difference. Mussolini's definition of fascism, I think, is a really handy one that's useful. Basically, he said, quote, everything in the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state, end quote. So to me, that basically is an ideology that says individualism is not welcome here. Freedom and liberty are not welcome here. Everyone needs to be subsumed into this broader ideology and this broader body politic of the state. Uh, and not necessarily the nation, which is a grouping of individuals living in a country or having the same ideology and citizenship. Uh, no, it's the state, which is the bureaucratic governmental body 
that lords over the people themselves. That's what fascism is. Social conservatism, whether you like it or not, is not fascism. I personally don't like Giorgia Maloney's politics. If I were in Italy, I probably would not have voted for her. I would not vote for a politician like her in the United States. I'm not a populist. Uh, if you follow me online or have talked to me about my politics, you'll definitely know that. But this is a democratically elected politician. Uh, she's someone that was elected by the people who chose her to be the leader. It was not exactly something that was rigged. It wasn't something that she didn't get a, a majority of the votes for her party. She did. Uh, her party was the most popular pretty much by far. Many of her policies, actually, are shared by the left-wing Five Star Movement, uh, which was run by a comedian named Beppe Grillo, who was part of one of the previous governments. Their left-wing populists basically have a very similar sort of ideology to Maloney, but just kind of coming at it with the trappings of the left instead of the trappings of the right. Their policies were fairly similar, also were a bit harsh on migration, also were skeptical of the European Union, and also were interested in more social spending on Italian families. Unsurprisingly, the Five Star Movement, being more left-wing, was not labeled with the dreaded F-word, fascism. Instead, they were just seen as a kind of weirdo populist party, which they were. And all of this really is to show more of a move rightwards in European politics. I think a lot of the labeling of fascism, of hard right, far right, that you see in so much of the American and the mainstream European media basically is due to their general liberal bias against social conservatism. Personally, many times I do share that bias against social conservatism. I have never been a social conservative. I am not one now. But it's really clouding the judgment of people who are reporting and writing about these sorts of issues. And they're unable to actually see the reasons why people are voting for these parties. Because they're winning elections all over Europe. Viktor Orban, who is often the bugbear of Western liberals, uh, has been in charge of Hungary for quite some time. The Law and Justice Party in Poland has been in charge there for quite some time as well, has very similar policies to Maloney. More recently, you've had Sweden uh, put the Swedish Democrats into power. And although their name may sound like the American Democratic Party, they're not at all related. Uh, they're actually a right-wing party and quite heavily anti-immigration. So why are all these things happening? To me, that's the most important and interesting thing to come out of this large push towards the right in parts of Europe. I would say it's happening largely because the European Union, mostly led by France and especially Germany, have mismanaged and ignored most of the major issues of the past few decades that have impacted these nations, largely due to political ideology and political correctness. That may sound kind of absurd to you, but let's think through some of the things that are really being pushed back against by the voting public in their choice to elect these right-wing governments. First of all, immigration. That's been something that's been coming up constantly. In the wake of the Arab Spring and the Syrian War, and all of these things which were happening in the early 2010s, uh, Europe was flooded by migrants, oftentimes refugees fleeing from war, oftentimes young men looking for a better life, coming from sub-Saharan Africa and transiting through North Africa and across the Mediterranean. Italy, especially, was hit 
quite heavily by this wave of migration, given that they and Greece were often the first places within Europe that these migrants reached. Sweden also, uh, on, on, the, on the side, had another issue with this, given that they were a, a major destination for these immigrants. Uh, within the past decade or so, the population of immigrants in Sweden has risen dramatically. And Sweden and many European countries are notoriously homogenous. I think this is something that we in the United States kind of just take for granted about our country, and it's actually something that's extremely unique about our country, is that we have a wide variety of races, ethnicities, uh, peoples from all around the world come to the United States, and they fit in, they join in our melting pot, we work together as uh, a group. Oftentimes there are differences in terms of politics across racial or ethnic lines, but that's not really something that is, until recently, the biggest driving force of our politics. In Europe, countries are much more homogenous. They're much smaller. They largely have one single ethnicity as the vastly, vastly dominant one. Uh, and getting migration from all around the world is something that's more novel to them and can be more politically and socially disruptive. They have a harder time integrating these immigrants. And in places like Italy and Sweden, you actually see large rises in crime rates uh, due mostly to young men that are migrants uh, committing crimes in gangs or fighting with one another. Sweden, for example, has seen a massive rise in shootings and bombings. Uh, there's a great article about this on the Common Sense newsletter run by Barry Weiss about Sweden's crime problem. A related issue comes with respect to top-down social policy. So as much as the migration issue was driven by Angela Merkel, Germany, and their strength in the EU, so has been the social policy, which has been pushed top-down by the European Union. Oftentimes, bureaucrats from Brussels, largely representing the more progressive uh, northern and western European states, are pushing social policy that doesn't exactly work for the populations of southern Europe or the more conservative parts of the European Union. And this top-down social policy has alienated many people in those nations, uh, who are now voting for policies that are either against those directly or are against the European Union generally. The last thing that really matters here is financial policy. 2008 was obviously a major recession, really did cause a lot of problems all across the world, and Europe was particularly hard hit, especially southern Europe, Italy being one of these main nations. They obviously are all on the same common currency, the euro, so not being able to denominate bonds and uh, social spending and things like that in your own currency has given the European Union much more power over the daily lives of citizens in these southern European nations. Oftentimes, that's deeply, deeply resented. Italy is absolutely one of those nations. So we will see what happens. I do not think there's going to be drastic changes immediately in how Italy works with the European Union. But as time goes on, this is obviously important and is part of a bigger trend. So we will see what happens with the European Union in the coming decades. But I wouldn't be shocked if there are some more Brexits uh, coming along the pipe. And now on to our second topic in this foreign telegram for October 2022, Iran. Uh, if you've been following the news at all recently in the past several weeks, uh, maybe a little over a month now, there have been enormous protests roiling the entire country of Iran. Uh, they've been 
crossing from Tehran, which is the capital and the largest city, uh, to other major cities like Qum and Isfahan, uh, and even spreading to more outlying areas and smaller villages. There's over 80 cities now have been embroiled in these protests, all of which have been sparked basically by one incident, the death in police custody of a 22-year-old uh, Kurdish woman uh, from Iran named Masa Amini. She was brought into custody uh, for a religious police offense in which she was apparently being immodest by wearing her hijab improperly. Uh, as you may know, the hijab or the headscarf is mandated for women in Iran uh, under penalty of arrest and imprisonment by the religious police. When people here talk about theocracy in the United States and things like the Handmaid's Tale coming to life, so to speak, because of changes in Supreme Court jurisprudence, uh, it's a bit absurd, especially when there is a literal theocracy in Iran which oppresses women uh, to this degree. Uh, Ms. Amini was said to have died of a heart attack in custody, uh, but nobody really believes this. The family said she was in perfect health, and it's ridiculous that she was arrested in the first place. This is not the first time something like this has happened, but it was a particularly egregious case, and it's since sparked major protests, like I said, all around the country. Uh, and one of the things that's, that's extremely interesting about this protest movement, besides its continuation, its frequency, uh, its level of disruption, and its regional spread, is the fact that it's been led by women. Uh, this is something that should be a feminist triumph for, for anyone who cares about the rights of women around the world. These women are standing up courageously against a government that has not hesitated to use force and violence to crack down on protests in the past. As I wrote in my piece, Third Time's the Charm, this is the third time in the past decade and a half or so that Iran has been faced with waves of protests like this against the government. In 2009, it was the Green Movement, largely based in Tehran and with uh, student demonstrators, people who were more of the middle class, uh, which are not the main supporters of the regime. That was cracked down on harshly while the Obama administration sat by and did nothing as they were looking to negotiate a deal with Iran over its nuclear weapons program. A bit later, uh, during the Trump term, I think it was about 2019 in the fall, there were major demonstrations, again, uh, that did spread around the country quite a bit, mostly among the lower and working class uh, males around the country, who were dealing with high joblessness, as well as an overnight um, ramp up in oil prices that were quite, quite severe. Those protests, again, were not fully supported by the American government and were crushed uh, along with actually having COVID come up and diminish a lot of the protests themselves. And now this is the third time under the Biden administration, which is again looking to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, which was left under the Trump administration. As I mentioned, uh, these protests are different also because they've spread more widely and they've been led by women. One of the main uh, Western campaigners on this issue is Masi Alinejad, and she is an Iranian dissident who does now live in the West and has been targeted directly by the Iranian regime for assassination or kidnapping. I wrote about that several months ago when it happened. I would definitely recommend following her if you're interested in getting the latest news about the conflict 
and the protests, as well as the account at NatSecJeff on Twitter. He posts a lot of videos from Iran, basically giving context and showing what's actually happening on the streets around the country. As I speak on today, October 6, 2022, there has been a crackdown uh, coming on these protesters. Uh, it has been pretty harsh. There have been already dozens of people killed, and that's the ones that have been acknowledged. Obviously, there's probably way more than that. Cracking down on these protests, though, it can be difficult, largely because they are women-led, as I was saying before. It's interesting because the Iranian regime has never been shy about using force to crack down on protests, even those that people would consider legitimate and peaceful. But it's very different when you're cracking down on females protesting, especially ones who are en masse removing their hijab and cursing at the religious police officers who are trying to arrest them. Women have historically been a major part of protest movements and end up actually auguring well for the success of those movements. One specific example that comes to mind, especially given today's date, October 6th, is actually something that happened on today's date in 1789. It was the March of the Fishwives. It's a, during the French Revolution, uh, these women, fishwives, basically people who uh, worked in the marketplace and were pretty working class women, uh, women who were lower on the totem pole, did not have any political representation, whose husbands did not have any political representation, and who were dealing with uh, a regime that was really detached from the economic crises that were roiling the country at the time. They marched down to Versailles and basically forced the royals, uh, Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, to move to Paris, a place which they would not leave alive. What happened at Versailles that day uh, did involve some violence, but it was also extremely hard for the National Guardsmen who were there to protect Louis and Marie Antoinette to actually do anything about the protest. Societally, especially in a conservative society like Ancien Regime France or in current theocratic Iran, it's very difficult for men to exert violence on women, especially when the women are either unarmed or are armed very lightly. And shooting into a crowd is always difficult, but it does tend to be easier if it's men shooting at men. I guess chivalry isn't dead after all. But as I said, that does make it harder to crack down on these protests, although it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Right now, there have been thousands of arrests. As I said, dozens of people have been killed. But these protests are still ongoing. So if you're interested in learning more about them, like I said, follow those accounts online. Uh, I'll also be writing more about it. You can read my piece, Third Time's a Charm, over in Rational Policy. But some of the things that I do want to talk about from that piece uh, are both the responses to it and what I really think is the message of the piece, which is what the United States should do, uh, given these protests, to support them and to be able to help topple the Iranian regime, which has been so horrible for the people of this country as well as the people of the world. So what role does the U.S. have in these protests in Iran? What should we do? Should we support them? Should we not? Should we keep to ourselves? I have a very strong opinion about this. I think we should do quite a bit, actually. I think this is our moment, and I think that what we need to do is do whatever we can to help topple this horrible regime in Tehran that is threatening the security of the world, the region, and, of course, the people of Iran themselves. 
First off, I would say strong rhetorical support is a must. Obviously, we should be talking about this. The president should be talking about this. Secretary of State. All of these people should be talking about this as much as they can and bringing light to the suffering that's happening under the totalitarian Iranian regime. President Biden actually has done pretty good on this front. He had a pretty good statement the other day. I was pleased with that. I think that's important to be recognizing what's going on in Iran and showing our support for the people who are so courageously going out and protesting their government, something that we see as just a basic right. We also, the second thing that's probably the easiest thing to do here is to end our negotiations with Iran over the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. This is something that should have happened long ago. I've written about this before. I really don't think it's a good idea to be getting back in a nuclear deal with a country that has so clearly shown that it's willing to violate the letter and the spirit of any deal that we offer it, uh, and is so clearly hell-bent on both oppressing its own people, meddling abroad, killing Americans, and hurting our allies all across the region. I think we should try to stop the Iranian nuclear program however we need to do outside of making a deal with them. So if that means sabotage like we've done before in the past uh, with the Stuxnet virus, look that up if you haven't heard of it. It's kind of an amazing story. Uh, work with the Israelis to sabotage the program as they have been doing in the past. We should essentially go back to the maximum pressure strategy that was adopted under the Trump administration. Some people I don't really like did that strategy. Obviously, I didn't really like the president. I did not vote for him either time he ran. But in this case, the strategy was actually correct putting pressure on the Iranian regime through sanctions and through other diplomatic means, uh, stopping them from meddling with other places in the region by denying them funds, and actually going further and trying to stop them from making attacks on other countries. Uh, unfortunately, the Trump administration did not do that when it came to Iran, as Iran was able to attack Saudi Arabia and other places without much in the way of retaliation. Using that strategy will harm the government by denying it tax revenue, uh, revenue from oil exports, as well as other key industries. Much of the Iranian government and the Iranian military actually does control large swaths of the Iranian economy. So although it, sanctions like this will harm the Iranian people in the short term, given that it will increase pressure on the Iranian economy, it will more directly harm the Iranian government. And to me, that's exactly what sanctions are meant to do. Furthermore, we could use covert and cyber operations to undermine the regime. As I said before, the Stuxnet virus is a key one that was directly targeted at the nuclear program, but other things in terms of dealing with infrastructure, uh, in terms of messing around with Iranian military assets, uh, military intelligence, things like that, as well as dealing with their proxies like Hezbollah and various Shiite militias inside Iraq. I would even go as far to say the targeted assassinations, uh, a lot of the one that we did with Qasem Soleimani back in, I think, January 2020. That sounds like a long time ago. Uh, basically, what we did is we used a drone and we killed an Iranian general who was also the head of one of the largest terror regimes in the world. I think that was a totally fair trade, completely reasonable to do. He was directly involved with the deaths of hundreds of American servicemen in Iraq. So I don't think that that was exactly an overestimation or an overreach at any point uh, to do that to Qasem Soleimani. And I would say that we should keep that option on the table for other leaders that are similarly egregious, whether it comes with attacking Americans directly 
harming our interests, or killing Iranians themselves. Something that's a bit more peaceful would be sending in international observers uh, and removing Iran from international bodies if they refuse, or more likely when they refuse. I don't think Iran would ever consent to having international observers sent in to report on their human rights abuses. And they would try to turn that around on us and obviously all the other groups. It may not even pass the United Nations given how horrific a body that is. We can also use technology like Starlink, uh, run by Elon Musk, which is a company that essentially beams internet down from space into countries. Uh, we can do that to help go around what the Iranians are doing to cut back on internet access and censor the messages coming out. And I think the last and probably one of the most important things we could do for the people of Iran is to offer asylum. Uh, if they're refugees and they can get out of the country and they can get to an American embassy, I have no problem with saying that they can come here for political asylum until they're, it's safe to go back to their country. I think that's something that America really should do and has done for much of its history to try to help people who are seeking a better life uh, of freedom and fleeing political persecution. Oftentimes those folks are also quite intelligent, uh, liberal-minded folks who are trying to get out of a place that really hates them and is trying to get rid of them. So in short, they would be pretty, pretty wonderful, wonderful Americans. So I'm glad to be able to take people like that in, and I really do hope the Biden administration does more of that than we've been doing so far. To round out this section, and to be intellectually honest myself, I did want to walk through some of the main criticisms of this article that I've seen that I think are largely intellectually defensible and should be addressed. Uh, most of these have come from the website Ordinary Times. Uh, it's somewhere that I post many of my blog pieces, and I do other original writing there as well. You can check them out at ordinary-times.com. The first criticism I want to touch on is basically criticizing if us uh, if we have a role at all. The United States has a role at all in dealing with these protests. Basically, they say, if we support these protests or make any moves against the regime, we're just playing into the regime's hands as they all blame us and use us as a boogeyman and tar the protesters with that. To me, they're going to blame us anyways. So why not do the right thing and try to help the people of Iran at the same time, uh, given that this regime is completely illegitimate, absurd, and makes up stuff all the time. Uh, they deny the Holocaust constantly, for example. And, obviously, there has been evidence that they actually blamed us anyway. Before President Biden came out with his strong statement, as I said earlier, uh, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran who has a Twitter account somehow, uh, posted these tweets. Quote, I openly state that the recent riots and unrest in Iran were schemes designed by the U.S., the usurping fake Zionist regime, their mercenaries, and some treasonous Iranians abroad who helped them. Another thing he said were, quote, What are foreign states' motives for creating riots in Iran? They see that, praise God, Iran's development has gained momentum and measures are taken that can nullify sanctions which are the enemy's only weapon currently. They can't tolerate this, so they designed these riots. Those are things that were said directly by the Supreme Leader of Iran before the United States had any official response to the protests. So obviously our response is not going to cause them to blame us. They're just going to blame us anyway, because that's what the Iranian regime does. 
they're going to blame us and they're going to blame Israel. That's essentially how they've been doing it since 1979. That brings me to another criticism. Basically saying that we're just doing Israel's bidding here. And it's not really in American interests to either have anything to do with the Middle East or to not support Iran or counter their regional ambitions. To that, I say, Iran has been trying to go at the United States just as long as it's been trying to go at Israel. Basically, in 1979, the revolution was against the United States as much as it was against the Shah. Death to America has been a chant right alongside death to Israel at all of the rallies that have been run by that government. Furthermore, Israel is a strong ally, and Iran is an enemy to both of us. As a totalitarian theocracy which supports terrorism abroad against Israelis, obviously, but also against Americans, not only Americans in Israel, but Americans elsewhere. Uh, they've supported terrorist acts all across the world, not only in the Middle East, not only in the United States, but also in places like Argentina. There is an enormous bombing uh, against a Jewish group in Argentina that killed dozens back in the 1980s that essentially was carried out by the Iranian regime. So it's not a bad thing to be working with Israel or to be having the similar interests as the Israelis do, given that they are the only democracy in the entire Middle East and are a partner, essentially, for about 50 years, if not longer. Another argument that I've heard is that sanctions just don't work. They haven't solved the problem in the past and led to the downfall of the regime, so why would they solve the problem now? I just think that's kind of an insane argument to make, to be perfectly honest. As I said before, sanctions really do weaken the regime economically, given that it controls large swaths of the economy, including various important manufacturing industries, and obviously all the people who work for the government and the military. It does make citizens' lives more difficult, as I did say before, uh, but that only exacerbates their anger at their government. These sanctions are not being put into place arbitrarily, capriciously, or for any reason that is directly involved with the harming of Americans right now. I think these sanctions are mostly going to be put in place, or we could put ones in place, that would essentially be meant to punish the Iranian regime for its aggression against its own citizens, and its repression of the same. That's something that we can argue is actually in the people's interests themselves, and if the regime stops doing that, those sanctions can be removed. But, ideally, what would happen is that the regime itself would get removed by the people. Another argument uh, against what I wrote in my piece was that assassinations of foreign targets makes us evil, makes us just like people like Vladimir Putin who kill dissidents. First off, I think targeted assassinations of people who have killed Americans or engaged in gross violations of human rights, including the support of terrorist regimes, are totally legitimate targets. I have no problem with that. I think the ending of targeted assassinations of people like that uh, was a bad policy on our part. And the fact that we've gotten back to doing some of it, at least with respect to terror leaders, is absolutely a good thing. People who want to destroy the United States and who act on that impulse are not people that we should allow to actually carry out those sorts of strikes on Americans, our property, or our citizens. And with respect to the comparisons to Putin, as well as to the Iranians themselves, killing terrorists and rogue extremists, even if they're linked to a real country like Qasem Soleimani was, is not at all akin to murdering domestic political opposition or innocent civilians. I would 
really, really ask someone who believes that to check their own moral compass and to kind of try to compare like with like. People really get upset, obviously, reasonably so, when a police officer kills uh, a suspect in custody, as what happened to George Floyd. That led to riots and protests all around the country. And many of those were justified, the protests at least, given the treatment of George Floyd in police custody. That's not at all the same as to what's happening in Iran right now. Well, yes, a woman was killed in police custody. And now, in the aftermath, dozens and dozens of people have been killed directly by the police uh, in violent crackdowns with live ammunition. So trying to make some sort of moral equivalence between the United States and the Islamic Republic of Iran is, is quite ridiculous, in my opinion. And finally, the last, last criticism, which I think is useful and worth engaging with, is that the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was working. And we need to negotiate with people, even those people who are jerks, like the Iranian regime, who we may not like, but we're trying to reduce the threat of. First off, I would say Iran isn't just a jerk. It's a murderous nation which has killed Americans directly, as I said, not only in terrorist attacks, but in attacks against American servicemen in Iraq. The JCPOA itself was not working. It gave Iran billions of dollars to go into more foreign adventurism, which happened because of the deal itself and not because of the abrogation of the deal. Obviously, that sort of adventurism started before the Iran deal itself was canceled by President Trump. The deal itself also expired pretty, pretty quickly. Very important things, uh, parts of the deal that dealt with uranium enrichment actually expired in 2025, which, as you can tell, is only a few years from now. That's not a long-lasting argument. That's not a long-lasting deal. That's not something that is going to be able to last the test of time because it's something that we're allowing to lapse. Uh, and trying to rely on Iran's good behavior is just naive. Essentially, that deal allowed Iran to full-scale enrich the uranium it wanted for a weapons program with no guardrails, once the deal expired, which it did, and will still do if the Biden regime uh, gets back into it. Iran also was enriching uranium beyond the deal's parameters pretty much the entire time, and has been hiding it from international observers, something which has also been a consistent theme with Iran. And a deal for nuclear material without any work on nuclear-tipped missiles or Iran's terror regimes abroad is really kind of useless. Basically what can happen, Iran can take a break from developing a nuclear warhead directly and instead develop the missile technology or the terror groups needed to deliver it. That doesn't necessarily stop Iran from engaging in any of the malign activity especially the malign nuclear activity, which essentially would happen right at the end of the deal. Basically, it was a bad deal, it wasn't working, getting out of it made sense, and right now, putting that pressure back on the Iranian regime by doing all the things I said earlier will only help the people who are protesting for their rights and for their lives. So, I think that the Iranian people deserve our support, and we should do everything we can in our power to help them resist their tyrannical government. The third topic I wanted to talk about, and probably the one you've heard the most about, uh, is the updates on the situation in Ukraine, the Russo-Ukrainian war. 
I've written about this many times in the past, but haven't really written too much about it recently, at least in terms of formal blog posts. So consider this your update. There's been a major, major counteroffensive by the Ukrainians, taken a lot of territory, and created encirclements and pockets all around the front. Uh, I'm not going to delve into the huge details about every city and every battlefront, things like that. There are some great, great people uh, to follow online that can help with that, uh, especially people like Kyle Orton, as well as Michael Kaufman, K-O-F-M-A-N. Uh, he does an excellent job tracking the war. You can also check out the Institute for the Study of War, which does uh, wonderful maps and really great updates on the state of play in Ukraine, If you're, uh, especially if you're interested in, in very granular, detailed military sort of analysis. So just to give you an overview, uh, there have been massive gains in the north of the country near Kharkiv, east in the Donbass, and south near Kherson. Those are the three major fronts that Russia had opened up earlier in this war once they failed to take the capital of Kiev. These breakthroughs on counterattacks are, are pretty much uh, something that people didn't really expect a few months back. A few months ago, uh, Russia was holding the line. Uh, it had ceased advancing, but it was repelling the Ukrainian army from moving forward. Now that much of the Western aid has really gotten integrated into the Ukrainian military, we're seeing that situation change. Ukraine is able to take uh, plenty of territory from Russia. Russia seems to be demotivated, seems to be running out of equipment, and uh, the troops do seem to be demoralized. If this continues, Ukraine may be able to take back some major cities, uh, like Kherson, and push Russia behind some important rivers. Obviously, rivers are a major, major uh, issue in warfare, and being able to push your opponent behind a river makes it much, much harder for them to retake that territory, given that they'll need to bridge the river and create a whole new way to get a bridgehead on the other side. In these counteroffensives, Russian soldiers really have been dying en masse. Uh, there have been a lot of videos out there that are quite disturbing, so I would not suggest going to look for those, especially if you have a weak stomach. Uh, they're losing equipment very quickly in their retreats. We haven't seen as many major surrenders. Some of the uh, encircled troops, uh, I figured, would surrender, uh, but they've actually been able to conduct retreats, some orderly, some less so. But during these retreats, they've often been attacked and picked off by either Ukrainian air assets or other sorts of drones. The Ukrainian military performance in this counterattack really has been stellar. And as I said, the high-tech equipment that we've been providing to them really has paid off in spades. A modern-day Western, and particularly American, equipment has really, really shown that it can outclass what's been made by the Russians. If anything happens in this war, I do expect the Russian arms industry to contract and the American arms industry to take a lot of that slack, given how well uh, our assets have performed. Russia really has been dealing with this uh, in many different ways. Throughout this counterattack, uh, they've been doing various things to try to bolster their position, both at home and on the front. At the front, they are mobilizing. So troops are being mobilized, people conscripted, reserves being called up, and that is obviously bringing a lot of people into the military, people who are often older, poorly trained, uh, not well equipped, or who have not seen combat either ever or in a very, very long time. 
Previous to this, the Russian army was basically operating on a semi-volunteer basis. People were dealing with contracts. They would be time-limited. Obviously, they'd be pressured to stay on. Uh, it basically would be a mercenary crew as well as volunteers for the regular army. But now, given how many volunteers have died and how many people have been left on the battlefield in Ukraine, uh, Russia needs to ramp that up. So they've conscripted basically, I think, 300,000 or so uh, people have been called up and mobilized. And this has obviously caused greater, greater protest uh, in Russia than we've seen throughout most of this war. There hasn't been a ton of internal dissent, as we've seen in Russia, unfortunately. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult to protest in an authoritarian country like Russia. Uh, as we've seen with Iran, that often leads to violence. But these protests really have ramped up now that especially the sanctions are biting a little bit harder, and now that people who were really not feeling the war before are being called back into service to fight it. The dissent versus this mobilization really has been especially strong in minority areas of Russia, so often this is borderlands, farther east in Siberia, places like that that have ethnic minorities uh, that do live in Russia. This may be something that people don't really know much about, but Russia actually does have sizable ethnic minority populations. It's just not very integrated. They're largely uh, siloed into specific territories where their ethnic group has been living for potentially centuries. A lot of these areas have been heavily recruited from in terms of these uh, conscriptions. Some people are saying basically Putin is using these conscriptions to ethnically cleanse and remove populations that are not what's called Great Russian, uh, which is Russian ethnic. And these could lead to major issues in some of these border areas and zones where the Russian government is less in control. Uh, there have been large protests and riots in places like Chechnya, Dagestan, both big Muslim areas in the Caucasus, uh, Buryatia, and Siberia, which are a bit farther east and have uh, more ethnically Asian populations. All these groups have been very heavily recruited from, uh, forcibly, uh, not volunteer basis, and many of the people that are still there are protesting against this. Besides the protests, there have also been mass, mass exodus of young military-aged men leaving Russia in droves. Uh, there have been hundreds of thousands. I think over 250,000 Russians have already fled uh, since this conscription order was launched about a week, week and a half ago. And what's happened is they fled over the borders, either into other Caucasus countries like Georgia, have gone into places like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan uh, in Central Asia. Some have gone into Europe, into Finland especially, until Finland closed their border. But some of the most interesting actually happened today on October 6th. Two Russians sailed from the far northeast of Russia in Kamchatka. Uh, I believe Kamchatka, at least. That's the far northeast of Russia. It's basically a barren wilderness, kind of like uh, northwest Alaska. And they sailed across the Bering Strait, the two of them, and landed on an island in Alaska, in the United States, and have asked for political asylum. So we'll see what happens there, but that's just one little anecdote of people really kind of doing whatever they could to get away from this drive for conscription, even if it could possibly cost them their life. Another Russian response to Ukraine's counteroffensive is kind of an odd counterintuitive one. Uh, it's annexation. Basically, Russia announced, Vladimir Putin announced in a speech 
uh, I believe outside of the Kremlin last week, that Russia was annexing four segments of Ukraine, which it had conquered, and was forcibly taking them into Russia. These annexations happened under the cloud of a referenda, uh, which were given in each of these provinces, in the east, uh, as well as in the south and Kherson. These places specifically, uh, quote-unquote, voted to join Russia. Referendum is basically a term for a popular vote uh, on one issue, and when that popular vote on one issue is basically rigged, it's called a plebiscite. And I wish the media would call this what it is, which is a plebiscite and not a referendum. The annexation is illegal. Obviously, the Ukrainian people who are living in these regions do not want to be part of Russia. If they voted at all to be part of Russia, it was under the pressure of the Russian military, which was supervising these elections. Obviously outlandish and completely uh, invalid to hold an election under those sorts of circumstances. Nobody in their right mind would consider this legitimate or accept this annexation. And I do not think at this point any international uh, bodies or other nations have assented to this sort of land grab from Moscow. It was announced, like I said, at a huge parade and rally. Lots of very, very bellicose rhetoric, basically saying that these are part of Russia forever, have been part of Russia forever, and if they're attacked, then they'll be hell to pay, because it'll be an attack on territorial Russia, uh, something which basically hasn't really happened much yet. Ukraine has not been attacking into Russia proper, although I do think they should, and they have occasionally. Annexation, which has been hap which is happening now, is happening right when they're retreating from these very territories, and the Ukrainian army is coming in and being greeted as liberators. So that kind of puts the lie to the fact that these are Russian provinces. They're clearly not de facto, de jure, or any sort of way. Essentially, the only benefit Putin gets by annexing these territories is allowing him to claim that Ukraine and the West and NATO, essentially, are attacking sovereign Russian territory, and thus Ukraine and NATO are the ones that are escalating the conflict, and not Russia, you know, the country which invaded Ukraine and has been escalating this conflict the whole time. Something else that was curious that happened recently with respect to this conflict is the likely sabotage uh, caused explosions in the Nord Stream pipelines. These two pipelines basically used to deliver Russian gas across and underneath the Baltic Sea and directly to Germany. Russia has been using gas as a weapon against its enemies for years, if not decades now, and in my opinion, stupidly, the Germans agreed to these pipelines uh, under well, one of them under very suspicious circumstances, given that the Chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, who agreed to that deal, now works for the Russian gas company. Yeah, that's, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, how that sort of thing happens. But those two pipelines, uh, they were sabotaged, and are essentially totally shut down and will not be sending any gas. Uh, they were shut down previous to this explosion, because Russia was not importing any gas into Europe, uh, both because of sanctions against it and because of the fact that Europeans were supporting Ukraine. There has actually, however, been quite a bit of controversy over these explosions, mostly because we don't really know how they happened, why they happened, or who was behind them. I personally uh, believe that it was Russia, uh, but I'm open to other possibilities. I do think there should be a full investigation undertaken to really get to the bottom of this. Obviously, it's, it's a major international incident when 
international infrastructure is sabotaged and destroyed. Uh, let me explain why I think it was likely Russia. First off, it does count as an escalation, mostly against NATO assets, uh, as Germany is in NATO, or you know what I would call semi-NATO assets. Obviously, Russia also was a part owner of this pipeline. Uh, so it was kind of a gray zone attack, is what I would call it, saying it was in between NATO and being a direct sabotage of one's own infrastructure, which is you know kind of a weird thing to do. But what it does is it basically shows that Russia has the ability to demolish underwater infrastructure. That's very important, because this is not the only underwater pipeline, and it's also not the only sort of infrastructure that's deep underwater. Communications cables, which are critical to the modern world, uh, I wrote a lot about them in my thesis, actually, if you're any curious, uh, that's on my website, you can check that out. But basically, communications cables have been linking the world since the late 1800s. And what they've done is they've allowed for near instantaneous and now instantaneous transmission of information, basically from anywhere on the world to anywhere else on the world. Uh, most of the internet traffic, including financial traffic, travels over these cables uh, under the, underneath the ocean. And so basically showing that you can demolish underwater infrastructure basically should put all of these countries on high alert that their underwater infrastructure, whether it's pipelines or cables, could be at risk. As I said, the pipelines also were really not in use anyways, uh, and they may never be again after this explosion. It could also be a way to get the state gas monopoly, which I believe is called the Gazprom, off the hook for stopping the gas flow. Obviously, that would be a breach of contract, and Gazprom, which is mostly a nationalized gas company, uh, would be on the hook for damages uh, for stopping the flow of gas and breaching the contract. But... If the pipelines are somehow destroyed through some act of God or force majeure, essentially an explosion or sabotage, uh, that would stop that from being a cause of action for a lawsuit. So basically Russia would get what it wanted in terms of showing what it can do, while also avoiding being sued for stopping the gas. Essentially I see it as kind of like burning your boats after landing your army on the enemy shore. That's kind of a classic tactic to basically say, Okay, we're here now, we're not going back, we burned our boats, we can't go back to where we came from, and we need to just push forward no matter what. And by destroying this, it's essentially an escalation saying that the Russian relationship with the West will never be the same after this. And it gives Russia more control over that relationship, given that they are the ones who are cutting it off. Uh, I did speak a lot about, on, our, on my first podcast ever here, the foreign policy horseshoe. Basically, the coincidence of left and right, far left and far right especially, uh, on foreign policy, which is basically an isolationist, anti-American view that thinks the U.S. is the bad actor in basically most of the world. Uh, useful idiocy is a part of the foreign policy horseshoe. And oftentimes these people have been very much anti-U.S. and pro-Russia and anti-Ukraine in their coverage of this war. Of course... They're obviously blaming the United States for destroying these pipelines. You know, not something that's totally outlandish. Obviously, I think given that the Russians did have good motivation, seems like that is the most likely culprit. I do not think the U.S. would do this. Uh, and if we did, we should have done it ages ago because there was no point in even allowing this pipeline in the first place. That's why I'm upset that the sanctions were taken off it by President Biden early in his administration. 
right now, it's not at all in U.S. interest to possibly split NATO on this pipeline issue. Uh, if the U.S. did do it, it would cause major rifts in our alliance, both with Germany and with other states in Europe. That's not something we need now. We've been doing really, really well in Ukraine, and NATO has been largely sticking together. So the U.S. would really have no reason to try to do this and sow dissension in its own coalition. Also, the evidence given by the foreign policy horseshoe is pretty weak. It's one offhand Biden statement uh, from, I think, February, where he basically said if Russia invades Ukraine, then the Nord Stream pipeline will cease functioning. That could have meant anything, to be honest. And also, President Biden, and honestly, President Trump, too, are kind of known for saying a lot of weird stuff. So I wouldn't really take everything that they say, as I say, seriously or literally. Also, there's one other tweet that's out from an out-there Polish politician, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say far-right, kind of just very anti-Russia. Um, and he tweeted out a picture of the pipeline that was destroyed, saying, thank you, USA. It was eventually deleted later, and he said it was tongue-in-cheek. But also, this is not very much evidence that the United States actually did this. Uh, if anything, it's evidence of the contrary. The last thing I really want to talk about with respect to this conflict is the thing that's really been on most people's minds recently, uh, and that's the idea of nuclear escalation. Throughout the war, Vladimir Putin has really relied on nuclear threats rattling the nuclear saber, so to speak, to use as blackmail to force an end to the war on his terms, and basically stop Western aid to Ukraine, which has been killing his military for the past several months. Obviously, nuclear threats are scary, but people really have been making a huge, huge deal of any small move on this front, despite experts repeatedly debunking these claims. There was one a few days ago about a Russian, supposed Russian nuclear train that was carrying bombs to be used in Ukraine. This wasn't true at all. It was a normal maneuver by a train that was related to other sorts of logistics and not just nuclear ones. So things like that, obviously, anytime you see them, take them with a huge, huge grain of salt. Personally, I highly, highly doubt that there would be any serious use of nuclear weapons as long as we keep up deterrence. Uh, deterrence, as you may know, is a theory of international relations, basically, to me, saying, if you're going to be weak, war is being invited, whereas if you're being strong, then war is being stopped uh, in its tracks, essentially. If you're strong enough, then war can be prevented because people aren't interested in fighting you because they think they'll lose. One of the main problems with respect to Ukraine before the war is that Vladimir Putin underestimated them. He thought he would win. He thought it would be easy. Honestly, I did too. I thought most people did. Uh, and obviously the American government did because we weren't really supplying Ukraine with weapons before the war, as I suggested we should. Basically, if we want to keep deterrence going now, that basically means to me being clear that the use of nuclear weapons would not be tolerated and would be responded to overwhelmingly with a commensurate strike. If we say we'll only respond conventionally, essentially using non-nuclear methods, even if that's what ends up happening, which if was the case, it probably would. It, we probably would not nuke Russia back if new Russia dropped a nuclear bomb on Ukraine or used technical nuclear weapons in the theater. If we say we're merely going to respond conventionally, counterintuitively, that might actually make nuclear weapons more likely to be used rather than less. Historically, what the American response to nuclear weapons would be 
is that we'd respond in kind with nuclear weapons. For the past 70 years or so, that has stopped nuclear conflict from breaking out, even when there have been wars between nuclear powers or the long Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR, which came very close at times to erupting into something a bit more heated. The idea of a nuclear response to a nuclear use is one of the greatest deterrents of actual nuclear war. And I think Putin knows that a use of nukes would essentially end his regime for good. Whereas I do think he can probably find a way to save face in Ukraine eventually. Do I think he's going to be able to have all of these territories he annexed part of Russia? No, I do not. Do I think Crimea might stay Russia? Yes, unfortunately. Uh, there will have to be some sort of territorial climb down on both sides, as sad as that sounds and how immoral and amoral that is. But ideally, what will happen eventually is that Ukraine will be able to restore its full territorial sovereignty, uh, perhaps after Vladimir Putin passes from the stage. But at this point, I do think he is more rational than that in terms of thinking that if his government is going to fall, and if he at the helm is going to be killed or fall with it, I don't think he is ready for that yet. Uh, obviously, this is just going on history, on instinct, and on previous knowledge. No knowledge of Vladimir Putin personally, obviously. Uh, but I do think that's probably the most likely outcome. Again, this sort of thing is scary, and it's difficult to deal with and difficult to talk about. It doesn't really make much sense to a lot of people, given how incomprehensible the idea of nuclear war is. But it was something that was studied and strategized carefully over during the Cold War. Unfortunately, I do think that's something that we're going to have to bring back, studying and thinking about nuclear war and how we would deter it from happening in the first place. And now we come back to one of my favorite topics, the foreign policy horseshoe. They want us to give in in the face of these threats, basically saying that the potential, any potential for nuclear war is, is just too scary to even comprehend and that we should make sure that Russia, the power which is threatening nuclear escalation, gets what it wants. And Ukraine, Ukraine just isn't worth nuclear war. Nothing really is worth it, but definitely not Ukraine. That's their argument. It's not that easy. This is not that simple of a thing. Ukraine will keep fighting regardless. Whether we are arming it or not, whether most of the West is arming it or not, this is not a conflict that's just going to end with Ukraine rolling over and dying as a nation. Clearly. If you've been following this war at all, you will know that that's not something that's in the cards. Ukraine has been fighting this as hard as I've seen any nation in my life fight a foreign invasion. Even if we stop arming them and supplying them at all, even if Russia takes over most of the country, there will be a long insurgency. But I would be shocked if it even got to that point. First of all, Ukraine does have a lot of arms already that we've been supplying them with. Clearly, a lot of their neighbors, including Poland and the Baltic states, are happy to arm them and happy to supply them with money, given that they see themselves as next on the Russian chopping block. Those allies might actually get more directly involved if we stop funding and aiding Ukraine, which would actually be more likely to cause, again, nuclear war than the alternative, which is standing up to these threats now and continuing our help for Ukraine. This attitude also of just sheer terror in the face of nuclear war and, and basically capitulation in the face of any sort of nuclear threat, it blows the issue up, pardon the pun, and makes it seem far more likely than it is. As I said, I do not think that this is at all probable or likely. I do not think it is something that is going to happen, and I think we'd see a lot more conventional escalation before that were the case. And if we give in to these Russian nuclear threats, 
that doesn't just end Ukraine as a country and end this war. What it does is it ends the entire American-led world order. That may sound kind of kind of wild to you. It really may sound like it's overblown. But, but let me explain, because I do think this is true. Since 1945, when the United States did use the first atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, nobody else has been using them, has ever used them in anger or in war since. Since then, World War II, we've essentially been the, the world hegemons. The world has been run under basically what is American rules. I personally think those American rules are best off for everybody. Uh, free trade, free markets, free peoples. I think those are all very, very good things. I think democracy being spread around the world is fantastic, and I think that's something that we should continue to support. The American-led world order that we have now is what has made us as prosperous and as free as we are. But that world order is built on the fact that we secure peace and stability and allow the continuation of the norm that countries don't invade each other for territorial reasons. The United States helps guarantee that general peace. Obviously, there are always wars happening. Things like this do happen, even have happened since the U.S. has been leading the world. But there hasn't been a general large-scale war of territorial aggrandizement basically since World War II. If we give in to Russian nuclear threats, that creates the worst possible sort of moral hazard. Essentially, any two-bit dictator with a bomb could get whatever they want and can invade sovereign neighbors at will. I would say if we were to allow Russia's nuclear blackmail to succeed, I would look out for Taiwan to be swallowed up quite soon. I would look out for the Korean War to restart. I would look out for Iran to push harder for nukes and use that card to take over others, as well as the India and Pakistan border issues over Kashmir heating up into a potential nuclear conflict. It would open a Pandora's box of danger that would be just as dangerous, if not far more so, than a strong response to any nuclear use by Russia now, or even a strong rhetorical stance against it in advance of, hopefully, any sort of Russian use of nuclear weapons. This is something that I think should be self-explanatory. If you understand the fact that Russian blackmail, capitulating to that sort of thing, would lead to much more of that sort of thing happening. Obviously, if you pay for something and you're going to do that, you're going to get more of it because people will look on it and decide, oh, that makes sense. I'll do that. I can get what I want too. That's not something that is going to lead to a safer world, a stronger America, or the ability to keep our citizens safe. What we, what we need to do is keep up what we're doing. We're crippling a major adversary in Russia without endangering our own citizens by helping a nation fight for itself and its sovereignty. This right here is a nationalist position. It's kind of insane to me that so many of the so-called nationalists, the NATCONs I've talked about as being part of the foreign policy horseshoe, here at home, they, they just don't see that. They don't see this as some sort of nationalist position, even though we're supporting a strong nation in Ukraine from having its culture and its people entirely wiped out by a totalitarian revanchist imperial power in Russia. We should be keeping up our weapons sales. Obviously, all of these weapons that are being sold to Ukraine are being produced in the United States, so they're all going back into the pockets of Americans who work in the defense industry. We should replenish our own stockpiles through that same process and keep giving intel and training to Ukraine. We do not need to get directly involved. Ukraine has done plenty on their own. All we need to do is keep up the weapons flow, and that should be pretty easy for us. We have a very, very large 
weapons industry, and we have the tactical ability to help the Ukrainians in terms of training and maintenance on those advanced weapons. I wrote about this several months ago when the first big Ukraine bill passed, and in my article titled Bang for the Buck, essentially making the same argument. It's only gotten more of a successful argument since then, especially as Ukraine has taken so much territory back. One thing that I do think we should focus on is the fact that this is not the only theater in the world in which we're facing threats. As I said, if we do capitulate to Russian nuclear blackmail, places like Korea, places like Taiwan, and the Middle East could also flare up in violence. And China and Taiwan is especially an issue that I have very high on my radar all the time. If you know me, I'm definitely a big China hawk, and I've written a lot about that as being an issue for the future. We do need to focus on China too, but this war that's happening now has found us, and we can't ignore it. It's happening. Uh, as in the world's words of the former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, sometimes what happens is events, dear boy, events. This is one of those events that has come up and has changed the calculus. So yes, I'd like to focus all my attention on China as well, because I don't think Russia is really that important a threat to the United States in comparison. But what's happening is that Russia is a threat immediately, whereas China is a threat going forward. I do think we need to prioritize both, and I think we can. Especially if what we do is continue just funding and aiding the Ukrainians. This is basically a playbook that we can start instituting in Taiwan now, before any sort of invasion happens, which is what we should have been doing in Ukraine this whole time. We need to be able to do these two things at once. Prioritize Asia while using our financial and industrial might to help Europe, particularly Ukraine. Something that is really near and dear to my heart, and something that I know a lot about, is British imperial history. And the British Empire in this circumstance did something quite similar. It basically fought its continental wars by granting subsidies to its allies, and until World War I, British armies were not all that present on the European continent when there were wars happening. Basically what the British would do is that they would pay and support an ally who lived on continental Europe, oftentimes it was Prussia, other German states as well, and it basically would pay them to fight the war for it. We're doing something similar in Ukraine. We're not paying them to fight the war for us, but we're supporting them in weakening an adversary that is a mutual adversary, both of Ukraine and of the United States. What the British Empire focused on, its own actual resources and military, were on the colonial battles around the world that mattered far more to the empire's security and prosperity. I personally believe that Taiwan and China are much more of an issue with respect to our current day security and prosperity than is Ukraine. So, in that circumstance, if we're going to mimic the British Empire, from whom we basically inherited this world system, what we should be doing is focusing our actual military on China while sending our money and our weapons to Ukraine. If we're going to blow out the budget by doing dumb stuff like the continued COVID bills, build back better, and other sort of policies like that that are really unnecessary and only seek to improve uh, to make inflation worse, we at least should spend that money on the coming world crisis uh, between the United States and our great power rivals. So what I would say basically is what we need to do is continue staying the course here in Ukraine. Don't worry, celebrate Ukrainian victories, but do think about what we need to do to deter future Russian aggression and nuclear use in the future. But don't despair. The US is in the right here. Ukraine is in the right here. And Ukraine right now, on the battlefield, is winning. So we should keep supporting them, 
until they're able to really reach a victory that works out for their people and gets Russia back within its territorial borders uh, with its tail between its legs. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this was a fun foreign telegram. I hope you enjoyed this new format. Probably do one of these every month, every other month, just to give you an update on a few different stories instead of just merely focusing on a single one. Uh, this time I really did think there was just too much to talk about to just give you one single topic. So instead you got a smorgasbord of three. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please leave us a review on any of your favorite podcast services. Tell your friends, your family, your acquaintances. Share the podcast with them, uh, as well as my blog, rationalpolicy.com. Uh, in the past few weeks, I've written for a few other outlets as well, including, as I said, Ordinary Times at ordinary-times.com. Uh, and I had a movie review of the movie The Woman King appear in The Federalist, if you go check that out. Uh, that's probably my piece that's appeared at the biggest outlet so far, so that was pretty exciting. Please check me out on Twitter, at R-A-T-L Policy. I have changed my name, so now you can see me under my real name, Mike Cote, uh, instead of my pseudonym, Rational Policy. I hope you follow me there and interact with me. I'm always happy to chat with anybody about politics or international policy, uh, international relations, foreign policy, geopolitics, things like that, history especially. So look out, coming forward. I will have a few more podcasts, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Definitely will be writing some pieces, so please be sure to check them out. Again, thank you so much for listening, and this is the Rational Policy Podcast. I'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.